Morning, church. Great to see you. Brought my beautiful wife, Beth, up with me today because we want to talk to you. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's good. Anytime I do this, there's always the comments. You should do that every week. Yeah, you're welcome. So <laughs> we wanted to talk to you about some important things that are, that are happening here at Union Chapel and what we anticipate in the future. So we just wanted to stand together as we talk about these things for just a moment. Uh, Beth and I have been serving as the pastor of the church here for 34 years, and we're actually in our 35th year. Yeah, I think so. You do anything for 35 years, that's a pretty long time. Anyway, we're thrilled. We are thrilled to be here. It is, uh, we've just been reminiscing about this uh, recently, that after meeting Jesus and our, and our family, Union Chapel is the best thing that's ever happened to us. Just, just the best thing. And the reason it's the best thing is because of God's wonderful favor to us and so many beautiful people to associate with. Uh, you, you don't know how much I love my job, uh, hanging out with you folks. And it's just, it's just great. And be able to talk to you about Jesus week after week, it's just the best thing ever. And so it's an honor and a pleasure to serve we want to tell you about what we think is going to happen uh, in the future now. We're very, very excited. We couldn't be more excited about what God has been speaking to us about in terms of what He's doing and what He wants to do through us in the future. Uh, I get this question now as a product of my age, I suppose. People ask me, when are you going to retire? Well, why do you ask? <laughs> there, <laughs> I, we have no plans of retiring. In fact, why would we want to leave something so exciting. We wouldn't. So we're, we're just, we're here for a long time. You are, you are stuck. You're stuck with us. And that's just the way it is. Now here's, here's why we're so excited. If you've been here for a few years, you have heard me uh, muse about how I best hear God. And if for some reason, when I'm sitting in our canoe out in the middle of the lake, I tend to be able to hear God well from the canoe. I, you know, just paddle out in the middle and just stop. And I'm just sitting there. Water's calm, early in the morning, barely, barely light out. There, there's, there's something about that that helps me get plugged in. And God can download uh, in that kind of way. So I've been spending a lot of time sitting in the middle of, of a lake, uh, just sitting there. I'm sure people are wondering what I'm doing, but here are some of the things I sense God speaking to us about. You've, you've heard us talking about this uh, trend in the United States right now where we are seeing young adults and people in their 20s starting to leave the church. And there, and there is some trending that way, and there's lots of studies being done and attempts to comprehend why this is happening. And it's, it's, a, it's a burden to us. It's, a, it's disappointing we're also learning that the median age of people who come to faith in Jesus Christ do so at a younger and younger age. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when we started pastoral ministry, that age, median age, was about 20, 21 years old. And that's continued to go down till today, 2015. The median age of people coming to Jesus is 12 or 13 years old, which means the most receptive people in our culture to the witness of Christ are children and teenagers. And so we have this opportunity then, knowing that we can offer Christ to these uh, generational groups in meaningful ways. So that's one piece of it. This growing passion that I have, this burden that I have, you know, not only to keep the faith. As you get older, you know, that's a priority, isn't it? Keep the faith. Just hang in there. Keep the faith. Because you stay alive long enough and stuff happens, right? Things that can knock you off, off course. And, and cause you to wobble. So keeping the faith, that's a big deal. But that's only half of the responsibility of faithful ones. Keeping the faith is one half of it, but the other half of it is sharing the faith, passing the faith along to the next generation. And so these two challenges. And so I feel the passion of that opportunity growing in me and I think for us. We want to reach children and youth, young adults, young families. We want to see the next generation discipled for Jesus Christ so that a foundation can be laid for the next generation. 
Now, the second thing that God's been nudging me about, I've talked a bit about it off and on, and that is this trend in the United States where we see churches that are struggling and even dying. In fact, some indications are that one-third of all the churches, Protestant churches in America, are either dead or dying. It's about 100,000 churches of the total 300,000 Protestant churches in the United States are on their last leg or already dead. And this is a sobering reality. There's lots of reasons for that. And you can point your finger at some of these churches, but the, one of the big problems is that many of these churches are just in the wrong location. There aren't people around those churches anymore. And we see that happening in, even in our own county where little churches that were part of little neighborhoods or small towns in the past, you know, there's not as much vitality with the population centers there, and so these churches dwindle. And so the question is asked, what is a strategic way to address the needs, the spiritual needs of the United States? And one of the ways to do that is to plant new churches. New church development is an essential part of being involved in a strategic way in kingdom initiatives in our own country. We need more churches. There are population centers in some of the suburbians and urban centers of America that are burgeoning, they're growing dramatically, but there aren't enough churches there to effectively give witness and opportunity for those populations. And so, uh, and so more and more we're hearing voices, and it's not only true in the United States, but it's true in many parts of the world. There are, there's the need for more churches. So I'm sitting in my canoe, and I hear God ask me this. He said, if, if you knew that I was going to return 10 years from right now, today, this moment. You knew it. The return of Jesus, 10 years from today. What, what would you do? What would you be? What would you seek to be as a person? What would you do? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation, said we ought to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and is coming tomorrow. That, that kind of gives you perspective, right? And so what would I do? And what would I attempt to be? And then I, I sense God asking me this question. If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? Failure was not an option. What would you do? It's a good question, isn't it? How about you? How would you answer that question? And for me, this is, it came down to this. I, I said, Lord, if, if, I, if I knew that there was X amount of time and I knew I couldn't fail... I would reach as many people in the next generation that I possibly could. That's what I would do. I would do that with as much, with as much passion as you give me. And I, would, and I would start new faith communities in the United States and in other parts of the world, in needy parts, unreached parts of the world. I would plant churches because it's the single most effective way to reach the lost people, starting new churches, and the best way to make disciples. That's the mandate, right? Jesus said, go into the, all the world, make disciples. And the, the faith community is where real life transformation happens. And so I would plant churches. That's what I would do if I knew I couldn't fail. So here we are with these two mandates that I feel strongly about. And I want you to think about those things. And I want you to pray about those things. And I, I'm admitting to you that I and we are feeling passionate about this. You know, when you're passionate about something, it'll keep you up at night. Have you noticed? I mean, it's really important to you. It'll keep you up. And I, I've discovered I'm up at night thinking about these things. And, and not only that, but it, it will cause you to be sacrificial. I mean, when you're really passionate about something, I mean, there isn't much you wouldn't do, right? To see it accomplished, to see it acquired. I mean, we want that kind of passion for kingdom initiative. And the other thing is you'll be inclined not to give up. No matter the opposition, no matter the, the, the obstacles, you're not going to quit. You're not going to give in. You're not going to give up until you see those things accomplished. So these are the things that God's been speaking to us about, and I want you to be praying about it as well. So therefore, here's what we're going to do next. If you'll reach in your bulletin and pull out this insert, it says reach on it. We are going to initiate a new capital campaign here at Union Chapel. This is a, this is a major capital campaign you should know that it has been 10 years since Union Chapel has had a capital campaign. Now, I have friends across the country who, who tell me that they, they do campaigns every three or four years, major campaigns. I've got one friend who said, we haven't been 
not in a campaign for about a decade. So they just go from one campaign to the next, just one after another. We haven't had a major capital campaign at Union Chapel for a decade. You're welcome. That's, I, mean, I mean, really. And, uh, but the party's over. Party's over. On the front page of this campaign, you'll see our tagline, making a powerful vision happen through debt reduction, campus upgrades, and new church development. Now, have I mentioned a mortgage? I haven't mentioned the mortgage once until right now. If you'll flip this over, you'll see that our cornerstone goal, our basic foundational goal for this campaign is $4 million. And this is what we're going to do when these monies come in. We're going to pay the mortgage off. Now, listen to me. This isn't about the mortgage. This is about mission focus. And the mortgage just happens to be in the way. Our mortgage, current mortgage, is uh, not, it's not great. It's $2.2 million. And it's just in the way. Think of it this way. Once the mortgage is gone, that frees up about a quarter of a million dollars that we would be otherwise spending in principal and interest on that mortgage, free up so that we can engage that money in a strategic way, in a mission-focused way. And so we're going to get the mortgage out of the way. It's like, it's like an obstacle. So we have to move it because it keeps us from our mission. And that's the first thing we're going to do. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to complete the renovation in the children's wing and some upgrades here in the, in the youth building. And the reason for that is because this is our focus. We want to reach children and youth, young adults, young families, and we want to make it more appealing. The youth, the children's wing is 20 years old. It's time for an upgrade. You've seen the lobby. We've renovated that. We still have some money left over from last year's Christmas offering. And so we're going to add to that. We're going to, re, we're going to redo, refurbish the whole children's wing and make it even more exciting for children. You can see that there are going to be some other things related to the church planning that I mentioned, maybe uh, some, some staff and, and build some structures to make that happen so that we can be an incubator for emerging leaders who wish to do this kind of pioneering work in other parts of the country or even other parts of the world. We want to be, we want to be a place where people know Jesus, grow in their relationship with Jesus, and then go wherever God calls them to tell others about Jesus. That's our mission. That's why we're in business. And so this is about a mission focus. You may say, well, $4 million, that's pretty ambitious. Well, think of it this way. Our annual budget now at Union Chapel is just over $2 million. So if you think about it this way, it's approximately two times our annual budget. And this campaign is going to start today, and it will run through the end of the year and through the next two calendar years. So all the way to the end of 2017, is how long the campaign will last. And if you think about it in that length of time and in these particular terms relative to our current budget, it will occur to you that this is doable. And we've done our homework and we, we know what we're capable of doing and we will hit this $4 million goal. We will hit it. So it's, it's not over the moon. If we get more than $4 million, you can see this great commission level. If we get more then what we'll do is we're going to invest it in mission-strategic ways and continue to expand the borders of the kingdom here and there. Very exciting. So that's what we're about. And so I want to introduce you this morning to an old friend. This is Robin Wood and his wife, Julia. Robin is going to be the director of the REACH campaign, and I want you to get acquainted with him this morning, and many of you will be meeting with him personally over the next weeks and months. Robin is... Uh, for, uh, is Church of God Anderson. He's clergy, ordained clergy with the Church of God Anderson, our good friends just uh, to the south and west here in Anderson. Church of God Anderson is actually about a hundred-year-old denomination that came out of the Wesleyan holiness movement. So they are first cousins to us Methodists, and, uh, you know, they're okay. <laughs> Robin... Robin is an old friend, as I mentioned. We knew each other almost 30 years ago when Robin was the youth pastor at the Church of God in Eaton, Indiana, right here in the county. Now, some of you will go, that can't be. Because, you know, a woman last night said, I was in your youth group, <laughs> you know, 30 years ago. From there, Robin went to uh, Casper, Wyoming and for, to uh, pastor there and then to Phoenix, Arizona, where he pioneered a new church, planted a new church in Phoenix, Mountain Park Community Church, a church which grew to 2,400 in worship attendance every Sunday. Pretty good, huh? That's pretty good. And then uh, Robin and a, and a friend co-founded a ministry called 
Church Multiplication Association. This was with the Church of God Anderson and Robin and his t- team of others with Christian Multiplication, Church Multiplication Association. They planted, successfully planted over 70 churches in the United States. In, in 2010, uh, just because they were tracking the numbers of these new church plants, they asked the question after Easter Sunday on 2010, how many people attended these uh, 70 plus new churches that had been planted in the last decade? And the answer was 55,000 people. So that's pretty good. Nod your head, Lynn. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The last, the last uh, handful of years, Robin has been uh, working in the nonprofit world doing capital development. And so the kind of thing that we're asking him to direct now for us. And so you can see with his experiences in pastoral ministry and with church planting and with capital development and our friendship, you can see the alignment that is happening. And Robin and Julia have come full circle now, living in Yorktown and, and actually have a, associating with Union Chapel. This is their home. And so they'll be working for us in this campaign. Now, typically when we start a big capital campaign, a, a church will have a big blowout and this will be very public and, and it's rah, rah, rah with lights and camera and all that. We're not going to go that route. Let me tell you philosophically what we're going to do Rather than making this a big public appeal, so this is all you hear about for weeks and weeks, uh, rather than doing that, we are going to make the campaign more private, more personal, more relational. We are going to trust God and trust you to pray about this and seek His will for your particular investment in the, in the campaign. Beth and I have been talking, praying about this for several weeks, and we are very excited about what God's asking us in terms of our personal participation. So what we're going to do now for a number of weeks is Robin is going to be meeting with individuals, some of the key uh, leaders in our church to talk about their participation. He'll be meeting with small groups and probably be in your small group here in the next uh, weeks to come. And he'll be talking with you privately by invitation. He'll be out in the cafe in the lobby at the sanctuary for the weeks following now, and you can make an appointment with him. I hope you will. He'll come to your home at your convenience and speak with you privately about this, and you'll appreciate his warm pastoral style. You'll like him, and, and he'll, he'll be able to... And so what we want to do is just to provide in these early weeks some leadership gifts and, and some lead leaders who will get us off and running with the campaign, and we'll be talking about it just very infrequently publicly. But just so that you know that we're going to keep it quiet. And the reason, the reason we're doing this primarily is so that we won't lose our focus. Because we're not, about, we're not about raising money. We're about making disciples for Jesus Christ. And the big push is coming up. New, new service schedule next week. All about including and inviting and hoping that others will find hope in Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. And so you be praying about your commitment to the REACH campaign, and God, God's going to do a great thing among us. So let's pause and pray just for a moment. Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your faithfulness all of these years. As I stand here with Beth and, and my friends, Robin and Julia, I thank you, God, for your hand on all of our lives and for the way that you have ordered our steps. And you have brought us to this moment, which, which I believe is a providential moment. It is a sovereign day in our lives. And Lord, we can only imagine what you're going to do, the fruit that will be produced, the men and women, boys and girls, who are going to come to a meaningful relationship with you because we are willing to sacrifice and pray. Help us, God, then. Give us your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. All right, now Robin will be out in the cafe as you're leaving today. Be sure and say hi. He'll be out at the picnic and so forth. So looking forward to that. Thank you, Beth. Good to see you, babe. Last night, she was walking off the stage, and she turned back and said, are you, are you finished with me? And I said, no. No, I'm not finished with you. I'm finished with you right now in the moment, but no, in general, no, I'm not done with you at all. I have a lot more to do. Now, as you know, we've been talking about revival, and today I want to issue a call to prayer. Listen to, look at me. 
a move of God, revival renewal that is from God is not program planned. It is God breathed. Not program planned. It is God breathed. You can fancy it up. You can pretty it up. You can sparkle it up. And you can, you can present the, the best possible program, best possible ministry, but unless God touches it, unless God, God breathes on it, it won't have the life that we need. And so a call to prayer is our willingness to humble ourselves before God and to call on Him for His power, His grace, and His presence in our lives personally and through our lives corporately. And so this is why... The call to prayer. Today's text is found in the book of Acts, the New Testament letter of Acts. I want to read about this powerful prayer meeting that occurred in a home of a woman named Mary. Chapter 12, I'm going to read the first 24 verses here, and I hope it is an inspiring message for you. Acts chapter 12, it is our custom here to honor God's word by standing to hear, hear the scripture read. This is the word of God. For the people of God. Acts chapter 12 verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James the brother of John put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. How many soldiers would that be? 16 soldiers for one guy. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And of course, his intention was to be more than try him. He was going to execute him. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, all of you aspiring preachers in the room, this is a beautiful four-point sermon right here in verse 5. See it? The church earnestly praying to God for Peter. There you go, free of charge. Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains. Sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. You okay with that? Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me, the angel told Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. You know, this is quite a dream. And they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. You okay with that? All right. And they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. Does anyone enjoy the unbelief from these praying saints? You know, this helps me. Anyone ever prayed earnestly for something? When God did it, you went, wow, surprise me. <laughs> ever happened to you? You can identify with these guys. And when... And, and, and you're out of your mind. So when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. I bet that's right. After Peter had a thorough search made for him and did not, after Herod... Is that what I said? After Herod had a, made a thir thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. 
They depended on the king's country for their food. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Wow. May the, may the God of heaven inspire his word today through our hearts. You may be seated. Thanks so much. I saw this man from the relative safety of my group of friends. We were traveling in a pack of four people. We were in Bombay, now known as Mumbai, India. This was a scene that you can actually get a glimpse of in just about any street in the middle of Bombay. Somehow this guy, though, seemed more horrible to me than the average person who seemed deranged. He was one of those wandering madmen. Now, it's impossible for us in the United States to comprehend this because uh, these folks typically are not left to simply roam the streets in America when they are so deeply troubled. This man was disconnected, completely disconnected from reality. He was stumbling aimlessly. He was dangerously demon, demonized. And as we walked by him and got closer to him, and as he walked right to me, I could have actually reached out and touched him, and his gaze became fixed on me. And we made eye contact, and just as he walked by, the, the, the depth of the bondage and, the, and the, the, the nature of the demonized corruption of this man's life was overwhelming. I can still see his face right now. Now, I want to tell you my first thought, and now you'll have to forgive me for my unbelief and my lack of faith, because when I made eye contact with this man who was so deeply troubled, he was insane. The first step I took after that moment, looking into this man's eyes, this was the thought that came into my mind. And you'll have to forgive me. But I thought, that man will die that way. That man will die that way. Second step, there's no hope for him. Third step, he is way too far gone. Fourth step, there's no one that out of touch with reality could ever possibly recover. No one that demonized, corrupted, bound up and enslaved and chained by evil itself. There's no hope for him. Next step, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even understand why I'm in this place. I got nothing for nobody here. You have to forgive my unbelief. There is, there is the horrible bondage, listen, and the chains the world can lay on us and on others. And when that door shuts and when we find ourselves or others in that level of enslavement and bondage to whatever thing or whatever things you can imagine and mention, something that we should be acutely aware of is that Satan lavishes in these moments. He, 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 he will not give up his prizes easily. It's not as if we become enslaved and then we get these metal files and we can cut our way out and release ourselves from these prisons. In fact, if you imagine Peter's imprisonment from our text in Acts 12, the physical outer prison had a, had a, had a fence and a gate. Then there's the inner prison with walls and gates and doors and soldiers. And then there's the inner prison and then down the steps and into the dungeon level where there are 16 other soldiers, and here is a man now in an inner, an inner cell with guards posted in front of the door, guards on either side of the man, and the man himself chained both hands and both feet to the wall. And so it occurs to you, there's no way for that guy to get out. I mean, he's in, and he's, he's in to stay. The only way that guy can get out is if someone from the outside comes in and liberates him because he's not getting out. Now, in a spiritual sense, of course, in Peter's case, he's not, 
He's not there because of his sin or because of his own personal corruption. He's, he's a leader of the church. He's a, he's a father now of the New Testament church. So this is a church that is, uh, that is beginning to grow prolifically. You understand the context here in Acts 12 that this is after the, the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And now just weeks after that, the day of Pentecost has occurred. And thousands of people are coming to a, a saving faith in Jesus. The power of God's Spirit is flowing through these early apostles, and Peter's one of them. 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, are meeting every Sabbath on Solomon's portico, a mega church uh, that is growing exponentially day by day, is forming now right in Jerusalem, and it's setting off the authorities. The, the authorities of Rome, Herod, who is this uh, puppet king appointed by Rome, he, uh, he was not a Jew. He grew up in Rome. He was a friend of the Caesars. He, he wanted to ingratiate himself in the Jewish community somehow. And, and so he sees this new movement of Christians. And so he, he first arrests uh, uh, John and, and, and has him put to death. And some believe that Herod actually killed him personally with a sword. And when he sees that this, uh, this enlivened the, the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, the civil and religious leaders of the day, he said, well, you know, if, if that's going to get me some good PR, then I'll have some more of these leaders of this new movement arrested. And so he picks Peter and has Peter set aside and enslaved in this dungeon just as the Passover is beginning and he has full intention after the pa Passover feast to have some mock trial and, and to execute Peter. And how does the church respond to this? How does the church respond to this great challenge? They engage what the world would consider to be an effete gesture. Some kind of weak response. What do they do? Hold a prayer meeting. Hold a prayer meeting. They hold a prayer meeting. They're fasting. They're praying. They're calling out to God. They're asking for God's deliverance of their friend, this leader, Peter, the father, one of the fathers of the church. Some would say the cornerstone leader of the church. Here he is, and he's, and he's scheduled to die, and the church begins to pray. Could I just encourage you to realize that this is the call that God has now placed on all of us, the call to prayer in the midst of challenging days? This business, for example, with Islam, it's not merely cultural religious, geopolitical, or military. This business with, with Islam is a spiritual issue. It's spiritual at its root. There's a spirit of murder. There's a spirit of deception. There's a deadening spirit that has gripped the souls of millions of people in our world. And the devil has posted guards over those millions of hearts and souls. And he's clamped chains on them and, and shut the prison doors. And you know what else the devil does? He sneers at an impotent Western church that is prayerless and faithless. God calls us to prayer. God calls us to prayer. And the church, as it responds to this challenge in Acts chapter 12, is the same response that is incumbent upon us today, to call on God and to believe God and to seek God and, and to ask God to do some delivering work, not only in our own lives, but people that we know. I wonder if you know someone and it's crossed your mind at some point to say, you know, that person's too far gone. That person's too far lost. You know, I've talked to them. I've prayed for them. I've helped them along the way, but they just don't, they don't get it. And they just keep making one bad mistake after another. That, you know, I'm just going to give up on them. Have you ever come to that place when you, when you stop embracing God by faith for a person that you just thought, just like me in Bombay that day? Well, that guy will die that way. Mm. Wow. Peter goes to the prayer meeting and demonstrates to those intercessors the nature of the power of God. We live in a nation right now that needs prayer. Can I get a witness? We need a touch of God. We need revival. We need a move of God. For example, ours is the country that spent the last week obsessing over Cecil the Lion. I know you know about this because everybody in America who has had 
had any reference to media at all knows about Cecil the Lion. A lion, of course, that most of us had never heard of before this. Cecil was killed, and yes, Cecil's death, it was cruel, it was wrong, it was unnecessary, and whoever hunted, poached him, should be punished, and I'm sure they will be punished, are being and will be punished. Shame on them for killing Cecil. But in a week filled with press reports examining every conceivable angle of this relatively unimportant story, what will become of Cecil's cubs? What of his brother Jericho? Will they have enough giraffe for dinner? What will happen to the dentist who shot him? What about his guides? Shouldn't every airline stop carrying wild game trophies? And on and on ad nauseum. Consider what else we might have devoted our energies to in the United States in this last week. Last week came the release of the fourth video revealing Planned Parenthood executives trafficking in baby parts. These horrifying and barbaric tapes in which Planned Parenthood executives talk about, quote, crushing babies carefully so they can, quote, harvest the baby's vital organs. This is, a, this is a practice and procedure that is worthy of Nazi Germany. Once and for all now, we should give ourselves permission to stop pointing a convicting, judgmental finger at Adolf Hitler and the Nazis of Germany during World War II and the Holocaust they perpetrated on Jews and other weak people in that, in that period of time. Because they've got nothing on us. They've got nothing on us. In that video, a doctor sorts through carefully dissected pieces of aborted baby saying, quote, Oh, look, here's some organs for you. They're all attached. Here's a stomach, a heart, a kidney, adrenal. She goes on to say that, quote, When you get to 17 or 18 weeks, because we do some of those, we'd have to do a little bit of training with the providers or something to make sure they didn't crush. There should be protests in the street. Years ago, a man named Adam Smith observed of human nature that most of us would lose more sleep over the loss of our own little finger than we would the loss of millions of lives in some distant place like China. He said, and I quote, it's society that corrects this self-centeredness and redirects it to better ends. Well, when Adam Smith wrote this statement, he presumed a society that shares honorable and noble and life-preserving values. What would Smith make of a society outraged by the loss of an animal in Africa and at the same time numb to the killing of millions of our own babies, themselves not much bigger than our little finger? Our country needs prayer, needs a move of God. Another example, our country is more interested in the gender assertions of B-list celebrities than, for example, the murderous persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. There are more Christian martyrs in 2014 and the early months of 2015 than in the first many years of the New Testament church. Our brethren are dying in Ethiopia, Darfur, the Sudan, ancient Persia, Syria, Iran, and Iraq, dying by the tens of thousands. Groups like Boko Haram and ISIS crucifying Christians, men, women, and children, decapitating them, burning them alive. And it seems like our government, our press, our citizenry cares nothing about it. Staggering to me. Our brethren are being persecuted in China, in North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Central Asia. But the Western church is not meeting at Mary's house, engaging in fasting and prayer. We're not on our faces. We do not believe, ultimately do not believe that these bondages can be broken. Not only that, but our cities are in bondage. There are major metropolitan areas in the United States where the murderous crime rate is up just this year by 20 and in some cases 30%. 
American citizens shooting each other dead in the streets. It is an affront to God. It's an affront to God that there are neighborhoods in America where the United States Postal Service will not deliver the mail. Not going down that street. Not going in that neighborhood. Too risky. Too dangerous. No mail service in there. It is an affront to God whom we claim to trust that there are areas of our cities that we have surrendered and where we have washed our hands and walked away to the suburbs. Too hard, too difficult, chronic problems, bondages too, too deep. Those folks are too deep into the prison. They cannot be liberated. They'll die that way. Mm. Mm. And God asks the simple question, where is the praying church? Where is the church that will shut themselves into Mary's house and catch hold of the altar of God and believe for the deliverance of captives? The breaking of these bondages, for prison doors to be opened, and for the church in all of its power to be released into the streets. Where are the people of God? Where is the church of Jesus Christ? The world and a tragic portion of the church underestimate the power of intercessory prayer. Many have a hard time believing that the direction of heaven can be motivated or energized or swayed by the prayers of mere mortals. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I fully understand this, but I am going to stand here and tell you that I fully believe that God answers prayer. I don't know how it always works, but I do believe that God calls us to prayer, God hears our prayers, and God answers our prayers. God intends to draw us into the action. Intercessory prayer moves the heart of God. God inspires us to pray. There are things God wants to do and will do, but He waits until His people pray. God covets a partnership of proactivity with His people. Some of you remember the story in Genesis 18 where Sodom and Gomorrah, it's an interesting, when you read that text, you should go read it, Genesis 18, and, and God is talking to Abraham and God says, God says that I have heard the cries that have arisen from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, if these cries are accurate because of the evil that exists there, he said, he said I can't permit these cities to go on. Judgment's going to fall. And Abraham begins to barter with God. He begins to bargain with God. He begins to intercede for the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what Abraham does. He says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, Will you judge them? And God said, no, if, I, if there are 50 righteous people there, no, I won't. And then, and then it's interesting, Abraham, he's got his hat in his hand, and he says, he said, God, you're great, and I'm small. He said, you're, you're almighty God, and I'm just dust and ashes. So please, don't take offense, but could I ask you, sir, you said you wouldn't judge Sodom if there were 50 righteous people there. What if there are only 45? And God said, there are 45 righteous I'll withhold my judgment. And this keeps working through the text. And Abraham, very, with great humility, approaches God and says, Lord, what if there are only 30? What if there are only 20? All the way down, what if there are only 10 righteous people left in Sodom? God said, if there are 10 righteous people, I'll preserve the whole city because of 10 righteous ones. Well, by the end of the story, you perhaps know how this ends. Two angels of, of destruction are sent from heaven to Sodom and Gomorrah because there aren't ten righteous people left. There's so much debauchery and so much corruption that God can't allow them to, to stay on the earth. And he finally, these angels finally say to Lot, he said, if you've got family, you better get them out because all hell's about to break loose. This is not the reference that we usually preach in American churches. Genesis 18. We're too prissy for that. We're too proper for that. We're too PC for that. We come then to this uh, last illustration I'd like to give you, and it's from Luke chapter 18. This is about a woman who has been ripped off by an unrighteous judge. Jesus told this story. And he said that there was a, a woman who had been defrauded, been defrauded by a judge who had taken a bribe and she lost a piece of property. And so the next day in court, 
the judge comes in, he sits behind the bench, and the woman stands up behind that little rail, you know, that separates the bench from the people, and she points her finger at that judge and says, you're a corrupt judge. You took a bribe. I lost my property, and I'll be here every day until I get justice. I want my property back. And the judge looks at the bailiff and says, get her out of here. And she's escorted out. But the next morning, the judge came, comes in, sits down, and there she is again. She said, you crooked dog, you no good for nothing scoundrel. You took a bribe. You're corrupt. I lost my property. I'll be back here every day until I get justice. I want my property back. Day two, he says, bailiff, get her sorry behind out of here. Day three, can you, can you see her now? She walks in with her little wooden cane. You, can you see her walk up right to that little wooden railing and just start pecking on it with her cane? Here I am again, you dirty dog. You took a bribe. You're a crooked judge. You're no good. You mistreated me, and I'll be back tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, until I get justice. Well, after day after day after day of this, Finally, the, the judge called this, calls the guy in that gave him the bribe. He says, here's your money back. He said, now you need to understand something. I don't fear God, and I don't care about people. That's just my style. I don't mind taking a bribe. I don't mind being corrupt. I don't care about any of that. But he said, that woman is going to wear me out. So we got to give her property back. Now, what, what is this parable about? It's not about the crooked judge. Listen. It's about the unflagging zeal of intercessory prayer. It's about persistence. It's about importunity in prayer. It's about taking hold of God in prayer and not letting go until He gives the answer. Every last one of us in this room today, listen to me, you had a great-grandmother or a grandmother or a mother or a grandfather who knew how to pray, and they prayed for you. They prayed for you. You are here today because somebody prayed for you. Mm -hmm. Someone got a hold of God on your behalf. And now you've taken steps in your own life to say yes to Jesus Christ and the amazing grace that He provides to your life. All because God heard the prayer of a person who got a hold of the altar of God the ear of God, and would not let go until God extended His grace youward. Now I wonder how many people you know, how many friends you have, how many associates, how many classmates, how many, how many family members do you know that you need to go to prayer and hang on to God for until God gives an answer, God gives a breakthrough. What we're going to do for the next 40 days during this call to prayer is we're going, to, we're going to engage together some prayerful practices. In your bulletin today, there's an insert called Five Blessings. Now, as I mentioned, the big push is coming up. This is, this is a, a period of six weeks beginning mid-September through October. And this is the, the season of the year when we are most intentional about being invitational toward people who are outside of outside of the church, and who need to take a step toward Jesus. And what we're going to do is ask you to pray for them. A simple, friendly way to touch the lives of family, friends, and neighbors by praying five blessings for five neighbors for five minutes a day, five days a week for five weeks. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this five blessings prayer. How do I start? There's a simple prayer there. You say, I don't, I don't know how to pray. I've, you know, I don't even remember the last time I prayed. We wrote the prayer. All you have to do is bow your head, keep your eyes open, read the prayer, and practice. Practice praying. God will hear your prayer. God will hear you. You have to be proper or, you know, all, all together. God will hear your prayer. He'll, he'll, he'll understand your heart. And then right at the bottom of this front page, five people I will pray for and invite to come to the big push. And these are the names. I, I challenge you to write the names of the five people that you're going to be praying for and blessing for these 40 days. Would you write their names down? If you don't do that, you know, it, it won't be as specific as it needs to be. So these are five people that I'm going to pray for, and then I'm going to pray for the courage to invite them to come with me to church during the big push. If you flip this over, just some more encouragement, inspiration. What would happen if we we're praying like this for the greater Muncie community? Good things would happen. What will it take? Five blessings, five neighbors, five days, five, five weeks. 
Who is my neighbor? It's a good question. A neighbor is any person who's nearby. Family member, friend, fellow worker, classmate. Luke 10, Jesus describes a neighbor as someone you meet along life's road who needs your help. So there it is. That's your neighbor. And so begin to ask God for the names and faces of people that you can be prayerful toward, to intercede for. And then what should you pray? There it is. It's just a simple little acronym using the word bless. Pray for their body. Pray for their work. Pray for their peace. Pray for their relationships. Pray for their salvation. Just five minutes a day. Everybody can do this. It only take five minutes. It only take five minutes to do it. But you'll, you'll begin to discover that your heart will be, become sensitive to, to God's plans for the people that you're praying for. And, and you'll discover great benefit to your own life personally. There's another tool that we want to give you. It's this blue insert. And this is just a simple devotional, a daily devotional. And it starts today. And it has a, has a today's thought and then today's prayer. And we'll, we're going to give you one of these handouts each of the next six weeks, these 40 days, so that every day we're doing kind of the same devotional together and praying the same prayer. I mean, you don't, you don't have to do anything. Just read it. What does it take? 30 seconds? 45 seconds? And there it is. So that we're engaged. We're starting to practice prayer. We're starting to engage God in prayer. We're starting to practice the presence of God. And we're starting to engage in a trusting intercessory prayer and believe God to touch people's lives. A move of God in your life, it's not program plan. You won't stumble into it. It's always God-breathed. It comes from God's favor. It comes from God's presence. And so we want to invoke God's spirit into our lives. Invite Him in. Invite Him into our church. Invite Him into our community. Invite Him into our country. And pray for God's revival power. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray about that just for a second. Lord, we pause and we give you thanks for this wonderful story. We thank you, God, that you are God who can break through and break in, set the captive free. There is nothing too difficult for you. There's no case too hard for you. There is no one so bound and so enslaved that you cannot liberate them. There is nothing too difficult for you, O oh God. And so Embolden our faith, we pray. Incite us to pray. Give us courage and confidence. Give us a hope that as we pray, you will hear us and you will extend your hand to touch these precious people whom you love and whom we know. And so help us, God, to be faithful to this call of prayer. To the praise of your glorious praise we ask. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.